For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful uh, and believe that it is given perfectly uh, to give us life. Lord, we, we remember this evening that man does not live on bread alone, but from every word out of the mouth of our God. And uh, Lord, in the same way our bodies... Uh, hunger for food and will starve and die without it. Our souls are hungering for your word and will starve and die without it. So we, we've made the decision to come to church and be fed this evening. I pray that you would feed us. Uh, Lord, we have all week, we have spent our weeks um, with screens and entertainment and endless news cycles and social media and distraction and Lord, we now come to still our hearts before um, the eternal weight of glory, before something that we know, we believe by faith, is more significant, more powerful, more important than anything we, um, we listen to or watch throughout our week. And so in that spirit, with teachable hearts longing to be changed, we come before you asking that you would bless the preaching of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, I guess I guess I need to ask how those New Year's resolutions are going. If you're like most people, this is about when they start to wane uh, a little bit. And then sadly, maybe depressingly so, by the time we get into February, uh, statistics tell us that 80% will have given up altogether on the new you. Um, why? why? Why do we struggle so much with this whole concept of change? Because change is hard. Let's just state the obvious. Uh, we have these visions of what we want to be, and a new year gives us a glimmer of hope that maybe that's possible, and then that is quickly extinguished by the reality of what change actually demands. I think we can all just admit that the old you is so much easier to be than the new you. And that's why we find this whole thing of resolutions so hard. Unless uh, you're one of those, uh, we've got one of these guys on staff. Um, many of you, maybe some of you don't know me. A lot of you probably don't know this guy. There's a guy on our staff named Mark Randall. Um, I like to call him 220 down the middle. For those who play golf, you'll get that imagery. When I play golf, I swing as hard as I can at the golf ball, and it goes, you know, 
everywhere which way, but sometimes I'll just hit the most amazing, perfect, long drive. And then my associate pastor, Mark Randall, he has this way of playing golf, or it's just nice and easy old man golf swing, and he hits it just 200, 220 yards down the middle every time. So I call him 220 down the middle. Well, we were talking about uh, resolutions in the office and talking about um, what resolutions uh, we're making and whether we actually even keep resolutions and old 220 down the middle, uh, of course, said, well, yeah, I keep my resolutions. And I said, really? So uh, I should know better to talk resolutions with 220 down the middle. But uh, I said, really? So uh, give me, what's your resolution? He said, well, I kept last year's resolution. And I said, what's that? He said, he said, well, uh, my resolution was to keep a bag of apples in my office. I said, a bag of apples in your office. He said, yeah, I have fruit at home and I always eat it there, so I'm hoping to keep some in the office so I will eat fruit in the office. That's my resolution. That is, um, that's a Mark Randall resolution, if you know him. You're trying to become a new person in 2019, he's aiming for a bag of apples. Um, I'm working from the assumption that you want more than Mark wants from his life this year, that you, that you actually want to change, that you want to be different. Um, and I want to tell you that that desire inside, that impulse inside of you is, is very Christian of you. Um, if you are not a follower of Jesus and, um, and you're just here kind of investigating what this whole thing is about, you need to know that this evening you have stumbled into what I would maybe call family talk. Um, this, is for, um, this is for believers in Jesus. This is for followers of Jesus who really want to be different. And this is the unique thing about Christianity. Christians view the enemy not outside but within. There is a mean streak to Christianity, to, do, to, to use religious words. There is a holy war to Christianity, but the war is not against them, the enemy outside. The war is against the enemy within, with ourselves, that we actually wage this battle against this thing called sin. And so if you're, uh, if you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe just watch and listen this evening at this strange community that has the audacity to say, I'm my biggest problem. What a, what a refreshing concept in our world today, that I'm my biggest problem. Maybe listen to how we talk about change, and maybe you'll find it compelling. But I, w I do want to say to Christians that that longing to be different on the most deep and fundamental ways is exactly what the Christian life is all about. There is a resoluteness to the Christian life, but resoluteness that goes much deeper, that is less interested in modifying the behavior and more interested in tacking the root that leads to the behavior. Resolutions of the Christian life are not just, I want to get healthier and lose weight this year. The Christian says, I want to put to death the gluttony of my heart and the habits of my life. It isn't just this year I'm going to be more disciplined and I'm going to get er up earlier and I'm going to read more or things like this. It is putting to death the slothfulness of my heart and the habits of my life. It isn't just this year I'm going to be a better husband or father or roommate or friend. It is 
putting to death the selfishness of my heart that wreaks habit on my relationships. This is what I want to speak to this evening. I want to redefine resolutions and the whole concept of change away from simple modification into death, killing of sin. Mortification is the old Puritan word. Like I said, it'll be more of a topical sermon, but I'm going to ground us here in Romans 8 for context's sake. I read 5 through 13, but I want to dwell on the implications of verse 13, and I'll tell you why. Verse 13 is a classic verse that caused my favorite Puritan, John Owen, um, whom my uh, third son is named after. I promise I know my children. My third son is named after um, to write my favorite Puritan work called The Mortification of Sin in the Believer, um, which is a fancy word to, mortification is a fancy word just say to say of killing. Killing of sin in the believer. And in the believer is the key. Romans 8.13 follows Romans 8.1, which says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. After Paul pronounces that famous no condemnation word, he immediately moves into a section about putting to death the sins that Jesus has already put to death on our behalf. And he is deadly serious about that expectation for the believer. Literally deadly. He uses a play on words here to set up the life and death struggle with the flesh and with our sin. This juxtaposition that's so brilliant where he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. You see his play on words there. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And John Owen famously summed up that statement this way. You have two choices, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. This is the resolution of the Christian life. Not behavioral resolutions, but mortification resolutions. And I want to give us help toward that end. When I preached through Romans 8 and came to verse 13, I preached a sermon that essentially delivered the content of Owen's work. Um, since then, I've revisited that sermon. I, I, I've taught it several times. Some of you have maybe heard me teach through Owen before, uh, modified it, and, tr- and what I, every time I'm trying to make it as more simple and practical and helpful as I can, because um, if, you, if you hear this and say, well, I want to check out this Owen guy, just be forewarned. It, it, he's, he's the hardest Puritan to read. He's very difficult to read. And his work is so important, though. So what I've tried to do is get it and package it in a very practical, deliverable way to you. That's what I want to do tonight. And so, in the most practical way, I've even ordered it around an acronym, and that's what we'll go through tonight. Uh, The acronym is KILL. Very morbid, I understand, but such is the case. Uh, that's, that's, That's the whole message of 813 and of Owen's work. So kill. Here they are. We'll go through them tonight, and let's, let's see if that can't help us here going into 2019. Kill. Knowledge of the enemy, intensity of the fight, labor of the ordinary, and loved of our God. Okay? If you didn't catch all those, that's okay. We'll be going through them. Let's go through each of these, which is Owen's way of doing uh, John 8, or John, I'm so used to being John, uh, Romans 8, 13. And uh, what I'll do is I'll give you a passage, and then I'll be quoting from Owen and expounding upon it. All right. Knowledge of the enemy. In Genesis 4, when sin first came onto the scene, when the battle against sin first started, there is this profound word from God to Cain. He says this, Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Not you must resist it. Not you must say no. 
Not you must flee from it. It says you must rule over it as if sin is this enemy that needs to be conquered by you. And it is. So if sin is an enemy to be conquered, then we need to understand the ways of our enemy. Whether it is a coach studying film or a general studying the ways of a terrorist network. We all understand the importance of knowing the opponent, and the same is true in spiritual warfare, in this battle against sin. We have to understand the ways of our enemy. And Owen focuses a lot of time on the ways of our enemy, but I'll sum up his thoughts in two ways, uh, two very practical ways, two things that you need to know about your sin, and it's this, that it's personal and it's progressing. I'm going to show you what I mean by each of those. First, that sin is personal. Our depravity is so much more complex than we realize. It is not just enough to say, I am a sinner. The next question needs to be, what kind of a sinner are you? Because it's very personal. Our stories are unique. Our struggles are unique. Our weaknesses are unique. And we need to know ourselves. Owen says it like this. When a sin falls in with the natural constitutions and temper, with a suitable course of life, and with occasions, that sin grows violent and impetuous above others. I'll translate. Here's what he's saying. When a sin comes in contact with our natural constitutions, what's he talking about there? Your personality. Your temperament. Who you are as a person. And with a suitable course of life, meaning your story, the way you have been formed as a person, and with occasion, meaning the timely opportunity and temptation to sin. When those three things align, it is a recipe for disaster. He goes on to say, this is the folly of most men. They set themselves with all earnestness and diligence against the manifestation of sin, yet leaving the root untouched, perhaps even undiscovered. So he's saying, we, we, want to, we want to fight the manifestation of sin, the way we sin, the way it works out in our lives, while never ever discovering what it is that's causing us to sin in such a way. I cannot overemphasize the significance of self-knowledge when it comes to putting your sin to death. Do you have the courage to know yourself? To get to know yourself? It's a scary thing to get to know yourself. If we keep on pretending, if we keep on ignoring, if we keep on suppressing, if we keep on hiding, then we will never be killing. So how do we discover ourselves? Well, you might think, certainly um, this has become popular in Christianity, you might think that the application is a journey of introspective self-discovery. How do I discover myself? I get alone with my journal in the woods and write to myself and talk to myself. The problem is that the Bible views our hearts as deceptive. John even says straight up, we deceive ourselves. What a fascinating verse that is. I lie to myself about myself, and I believe that lie. I am prone to deceive myself, so introspection may only deepen the deception and harden us further and compound the sin. According to the Bible, internal discovery comes by external means. 
I discover myself through external means. What are those means? Of course, it begins and ends with the Bible. You are allowed to go to the woods with the Bible and read that. That works really well. Not as a Bible study, not as a theologian, but as one wanting to be examined by the Bible. Not to study the Bible, but to let the Bible study you. So it begins and ends with the Bible. But if you read the Bible, you know what the Bible's going to tell you? <laughs> the greatest way to know yourself is to not ask yourself, but to ask others. It's community. This church talks a lot about community, so you already know that. But let me be specific. I'll give you three specific I guarantee you, if you do this, you'll know yourself. First, ask those closest. That's easy, or that's incredibly hard, but it's an easy application. Your, your, uh, your spouse, definitely ask them. They know you better than you know yourself. Um, your roommate, your friends, uh, the person mentoring you, uh, your, uh, your parents, if you're a child. Pa kids, do you have the humility to come to your parents and say, what do you see? Mom and dad, I'd love to know. If you're a parent, ask your child. Ouch. How scary is that? I love, I have a friend who takes their, his uh, kids out on, on, on dates, on, on daddy dates. And he sits down and he says, I promise you I'm not going to respond in any way to what you're about to say. And he asks them this on a date every time. How do you wish your daddy was different? And he just listens. Interesting question. Ask those closest to you. Ask those, how about this one? This is very unique in our time. Ask those ordained. I actually do believe that God, uh, that there's something unique to the church. There's something unique to the officers of the church. I think y'all are going to be talking a lot about this in, in the months to come, about the doctrine of the church. But I think there's something unique to this as an institution. I think there's something unique to Marshall, to Justin, to Phil, to Kyle, to Bryce. I actually do believe there's something unique to these guys. That God has ordained and set them apart with gifts, with anointings. How about you come to the ordained leaders that you have chosen to submit and say, what do you see? I want to know myself. Help me see myself. To those ordained. Or, here's a third one that, 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 that I, would, I, would, I would recommend, and these are all flow from my experience. Ask those anointed. There are certain people, and be really careful with this, Okay. Because a lot of people think they have this, and they like to be this person. But there are certain people just with the gifts of discernment, with prophetic gifts. People, and, and a lot of them are in, are in Christian counseling. Marshall can recommend a lot of these people to you. People who just, for whatever reason, they're just really gifted by God to sit down and say, there. Um, I, don't have, I, I don't have all the gifts. I certainly don't have all the gifts. That's, that's one of the things that I, that I do have. That um, Some of the other pastors will say, hey, I just need you to come into this. I just need you to sit down with them and, and tell me what you think. Um, because what, for whatever reason, um, that's, that's one of the spiritual gifts that I have. But a lot of people have that spiritual gift. And a lot of them, I'm talking about Christian counseling here. A good Christian counselor has this anointing, this, this um, gift of discernment to, to help you discover yourself. So ask those closest, ask those ordained, ask those anointed. And what all of this discovery will lead to are applications that are unique to you. To you, I have a life profile that I update every year, just updated it last week, and on it are commitments and convictions that are personal to me that guard me against my own personal sinful struggles. Some of them would be weird to you. Some of them would, you, would seem legalistic to you, but they're not 
for you. Legalism would be for me to say, you need to follow these two, but they're not for you. They're for me. I'll give, I'll give you just, we'll go practical. I'll, I'll give you the least embarrassing one. I've got a lot of embarrassing ones, so I'll give you the least embarrassing one. Um, so um, I, do not, I do not open my phone until after my morning prayer in the morning and after my kids go to bed at night. So I can look at my phone during the day, but I'm not allowed to open it and look at it until I pray in the morning. And then when I get home, I'm not allowed to open it or look at it until I get my kids to bed at night. Now, you, you may be able to look at your phone. I can't. I can't. I am an anxious, obsessive mess. And I will have a text and I will have an email that will not allow me to be present with my children or will not allow me to spend time with God in the morning. I can't do it. Now, if I were to stand here and say, nobody here is allowed to look at your phones until you pray, until you get your kids to bed, that's that. That would be called legalism. What I'm doing is not legalism. What I'm doing is wisdom for me and my sin that I'm trying to put to death. So, sin is personal. And you come up with personal fighting strategies for your personal sinful patterns. Okay. I do have to hurry up here, Marsh. I'm sorry. All right. Um, the other thing we need to know is that sin is progressing, okay? Temptation is ever before us, but what is so important to understand is the strength of temptation is not always the same. Please, please, please listen to this. In other words, sin progresses in power and strength always. Here's what Owen said. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism if it grew to its head. Therefore, rise mightily against the first actings of thy distemper, its first conceptions. Suffer it not to gain the least ground. Do not say to your sin, thus far it shall go and no further. If it have allowance for one step, it will take another. Here's what he's saying. Sin is continually growing in strength and will continue to do so if it has allowance. Inappropriate thoughts turn into flirtatious acts, turn into texting at night, turn into dinners altogether, turn into full-blown full adultery. And then you come to your senses and say, I have to stop this. What have I done? Well, I've got news for you. It is infinitely more difficult to put to death an affair than it is to put to death an inappropriate thought, which was the beginning of the affair way back then infinitely more difficult to put together a lifestyle of deception and a web of lies than the temptation to first deceive. Infinitely more difficult to put to, to death an addiction to a substance than the beginnings of that addiction when you can start to see, hmm, this might be getting a little out of control. So here's the obvious application. Rise quoting Owen, rise mightily against thy, the actings of thy distemper, the first actings of thy distemper. Don't play games with sin. Grace lovers. I love the Reformed faith. I love grace. We're loose. Don't play games. We dabble. We flirt. 
We experiment, we hide, we try to not let it get out of control, and all the while this thing is growing in strength and power. If it has allowance for one step, it will take another. Put your sin to death at its first inception when it's the weakest and easiest. And if you have achieved a measure of victory over your sin, good. Kick your sin while it's down and weak. Owen says this about those who are experiencing a freedom. Such a one never, this is, if you want to talk about what does it mean to be free from your sin, this is how Owen defines it, which I love. Such a one never thinks his sin dead because it is quiet, but labors still to give it new wounds every day. I love that. You want to know what victory over sin looks like? You never think it's dead just because it, it's quiet. You wake up and you give it new wounds every day. So, know your enemy. Your enemy is both personal and progressing. The others will be short, I promise. We'll, we'll speed up here. I apologize. All right, intensity of the fight. Here we go. Jesus said, let me ground us in Scripture. Jesus says, both in Matthew 5 and 18, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw away. Wow. Of course, we don't take our Lord's language literally here, but we do take his principle literally. He said it for a reason. It will take extreme measures, extreme methods, extreme efforts to kill our personal sins. They will never die of natural causes. Therefore, severity is the only disposition in this fight. One of the consequences of living lives of ease and comfort, where our biggest frustration is slow-moving traffic, is that we don't have a category for extreme, uncomfortable, disciplined, grit, striving. Everything's just so easy, and it's getting easier by the day. The problem is that there is no easy remedy for sin. Sins will only be put to death by extreme fighting. Because to be honest with you, this is the temperament of your tempter. Owen says this. <clears throat> if sin be watchful, strong, and always at work in the business of killing your soul, and we be slothful, negligent, and foolish in proceeding to its ruin, can we expect a comfortable outcome? There is not a, a day but sin foils or is foiled, prevails or is prevailed upon, and it will be so while we do live in this world. Sin is always acting, always conceiving, always seducing, always tempting, and so do you make it your daily work to kill it. Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work, and then his famous line, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Do you see his point? Your enemy never takes a day off. And so neither can you. We aren't playing games here. Our culture breeds lazy souls, and we must refuse that tendency inside us all. We will have eternity in heaven to rest from our labors against sin. We can't afford that luxury now. When sin leaves you alone, you are free to leave it alone. Until then, we must wake up every day with an extreme resolve about us. And when I say extreme, I have in mind cut off your hand, gouge out your eye measures. Perhaps you need daily accountability on something. Perhaps an entire relationship needs to come to an end. Perhaps the television or computer or smartphone just needs to go. I, I have a friend who went flip phone. It's not beyond the realm of possibility. Perhaps an entire change of career. I'm talking things that nobody in their right mind would understand unless they were someone who has an equal passion as you to see their sin be put to death. 
I'm talking about things that the world would say you're an idiot, but they don't understand how much you want to be different. Perhaps it's finally admitting that it's gotten so out of hand that you need serious help, intensive, maybe even professional help. For some, the most extreme thing you could do is lay down your pride and admit that you need help. Owen says this about addiction. When a lust hath lain long in the heart, corrupting, festering, cankering, it brings the soul to a woeful condition. It has grown too familiar to the mind and conscious such that you don't even startle at it as a strange thing anymore. In such a case, an ordinary course of mortification will not work. Do you understand what he's saying? If this sin has, has so long corrupted and festered in your heart and brought you to this woeful condition to where you don't even startle at it anymore, he's saying then ordinary ways of mortification will not work anymore. You know what he's saying? 21st century application of John Owen, you may need to go to rehab. I don't know what it'll look like for you, but this much I know. God is calling you right now in your life to do something so extreme that other people will think you're crazy and not understand it. Knowledge of the enemy. Intensity of the fight. Labor in the ordinary. In Matthew 12, Jesus tells this interesting parable. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. Odd parable. What's he saying? The principle is that if you expel the evil and then don't turn around and fill it with righteousness, the evil will return even stronger this time. The killing of sin must be accompanied by the cultivation of righteousness. It is not just enough to say no to sin. It is to say yes to the kingdom of God and the ways of Jesus. So how do we fill ourselves with righteousness? Well, Owen recognizes what the Bible makes so clear, that God has ordained means by which he can be found. He says this, Spiritually sick men cannot sweat out their distemper with effort. That's a great way to put it. Sick men cannot sweat out their disease with effort. You can't just white knuckle this thing. There's nothing, he says, there's nothing in religion that hath any efficacy. No religious determination can work. He says, but there are means by which God has appointed in other words, you can't white-knuckle this thing with religion, but God has ordained means where his help is found. And we must implore these means of grace. The most extraordinary thing you can do is to live an ordinary life laboring in the disciplines of the Christian life. Everybody wants to do things radical for Jesus. There is nothing more radical than the day-in, day-out labor in the ordinary means of grace. Prayer, scripture, fellowship. I cannot overemphasize how powerful these seemingly boring habits that we all struggle to do because they're not exciting enough for us. And they don't give us the emotional mountaintop high experience for us. And so we don't think they're effective because we're trained to believe emotion equals change. That's not true. Laborious, 
ordinary habits equals change. I cannot overemphasize how powerful these habits are, and you must make them central to your life. You, I'll tell you an easy way to do that. Very easy way to do that. Order your life around Sunday worship. This God-ordained buffet of the means of grace. Of course, make personal habits and the means of grace. Uh, your, your, the Marshall and, and Justin and folks can help you know how to do that. But be uncompromising in the, in the habit of corporate worship. You may not notice. You may not notice, but the ordinary rhythm of going to church is saving you from so much evil. You have no idea how much this gathering is saving you from every single week. I'll tell you how you will notice. Stop. You want to know how powerful the ordinary means of grace are? Stop them. Don't, but... (laughs) (laughs) Defeating myself here. But, okay, or I'll tell you. I've been pastoring a while now. I don't know many people who run away from Jesus. I know a lot of people who drift, who just stop the scriptures, stop the prayer, stop the church, and they wake up one day and their life is so intertwined with besetting sins. They've made a mess of things. They're just swallowed up by addiction and they come to me and they say, how did this happen? How did I get to this place? And it's really simple. They gave up the labor of the ordinary. Going to church. Knowledge of the enemy, intensity of the fight, labor of the ordinary, finally, within this spiritual battle against sin, never, ever, 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 ever forget that you are loved by God. In your fight to put put to death sin, never forget the love of the one that you have sinned against. In your fight to glorify God in your life, never forget the love of God over your life. All this sin talk, it's been heavy. Let's just take a moment. Let's just take a moment, shall we, to, let's do a few assurance of pardons here after this talk. Let's take a minute to bask in the good news of what God has done to our sin. You can put your pencils down. You can even close your eyes. Just listen to the word. Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for you. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Isaiah 1, Come now, let's reason together, declares the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Hebrews 10, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. And he sat down because it's finished. Romans 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation left for you. Acts 13. Let it be known to you, dear brothers and sisters, that through Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. You're forgiven. John 19. It is 
finished. Any attempt to put sin to death while forgetting that sin has been put to death are in vain. Never forget the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what John Owen says the greatest sin a believer can commit? Mr. Puritan, Mr. Mortification of sin in the believer. I love this. The, the, you could tell his love for the Lord. The greatest sorrow and burden that you can lay upon your heavenly Father, the greatest unkindness that you can do to him is to not believe that he loves you. In all your battles, in all your struggles, in all your failures and successes, never for one second can you forget that God loves you, that he has forgiven you of every sin, past, present, and future. If you want to strengthen the power of your sin, then believe that you are not forgiven of that sin that you're trying to put to death. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how abominable your actions have been. I don't care how addicted you are. I don't care if you have destroyed your life and the lives of those you love. All I care about is what is offered to you in Jesus, which is grace that is greater than all of your sins. You're not allowed to say to him, you've used up your chances, because you haven't. You're not allowed to say he won't take you back, because he will. You're not allowed to say it's too late for you, because it's never too late. God gets to make that call, not you. And he has already made it in Christ Jesus. He loves you. He's died for you. He will always welcome you back now. What you will discover in the sweetness of God's love is not just consolation in the fight, but strength and power and motivation in the fight. Meaning this, when you dwell upon the love of God in Christ Jesus, which is greater than all of your sins, not only will it give you consolation and comfort, it will give you motivation. Here's what Owen says. Bring thy sin to the gospel, not just for relief, though definitely do that, but for conviction. He says this. Look on him whom thou hast pierced and say to thy soul, what have I done? What love, what mercy, what blood, what grace have, grace have I despised and trampled on? What can I say to my dear Lord Jesus? How shall I hold up my head before him when I harbor sin in my heart? Was my soul washed that room might be made for new defilements. He's saying, bring your sin to the gospel for comfort and conviction. To look at this Jesus and say, how, how could I sin against the Jesus who's greater than my sins? What a haunting question. What can I say to my dear Lord Jesus? The one thing you cannot say is thanks for the grace. Now I get on to sin. No Christian says that. No true lover of Jesus responds to his grace in that way. Instead, grace does the opposite for us. It doesn't lead us to, into indulgence of sin, but a loathing of sin. Nothing will cause you to hate your sin more than to see him bleed for your sins. What can we say to our dear Lord Jesus? All we know to say is thank you, forevermore thank you. 
And our life's devotion is to kill the sin that killed our Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, give us a resoluteness that is fitting the Christian. Not a changed behavior, but a deep conviction and a new resolve to repent and be different. Give us help, Lord. It's so easy for sermons like this to be lost because they don't, they don't go out into the community around us. So I pray that it would not just stay with us and in the notes of a journal, but it would go immediately to community, immediately to Scripture, immediately to prayer for help. Lord, help us to put to death the sin that you put to death. That's what we say to you, Jesus. Our life ambition is to kill the sins that killed you. Thank you that you're greater than our sins. We pray in your name. Amen.